So I wanted I wanted to take the evening to reflect on some of the qualities of a gradual path. So um, within the Theravadan tradition, there's a lot of encouragement of creating the right ground and the right foundation to allow the path to unfold and, and with a clear understanding that it's a gradual unfolding, it's a gradual path, it's a gradual process. And so you certainly, you know, we can see that, you know, the commitment to living the life of integrity, of upholding the precepts, of um, making a generosity a practice that one uh, learns to stretch one's capacity and to give and sort of is a way of, 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 of both having direct access to one's own goodness as well as a way of counteracting the tendencies to cling and to hold on to are, um, are very helpful. There's also many other practices that are part of the gradual path. And so I wanted to just reflect on some of the Buddhist suttas around the gradual path. Is the first part of this evening, and then expand that theme. So this is from the Udana. Just as the ocean has a gradual shelf, a gradual slope, a gradual inclination, with a sharp drop off only after a long stretch. In the same way, this Dhamma in Vinaya has a gradual training, a gradual performance, a gradual progression, with a penetration to gnosis only after a long stretch. The fact that this Dhamma in Vinaya has a gradual training, a gradual performance, a gradual progression, the penetration to gnosis only after a wrong stretch. This is the first amazing and astounding fact about this Dhamma and Vinaya, that we that as they see it again and again, has the monks greatly pleased with the Dhamma and Vinaya. And there's this, you know, today I was trying to uh, find a way of using the earth that we have around here as a dye bath, and so when I saw this uh, analogy today, it, it struck a resonance. There are, O monks, gross impurities in gold, such as earth and sand, gravel and grit. Now the goldsmith or his apprentice first pours the gold into a trough and washes, rinses, and cleans it thoroughly. And when he's done this, there still remain moderate impurities in the gold, such as fine grit and coarse sand. And then the goldsmith or his apprentice washes, rinses, and cleans it again. And when he has done this, there still remain minute impurities in the gold, such as fine sand and black dust. Now the goldsmith or his apprentice repeats the washing, and thereafter only the gold dust remains. He now pours the gold into a melting pot, smelts it, and melts it together. But he does not yet take it out from the vessel, as the dross has not yet been entirely removed and the gold is not yet quite pliant, workable, and bright. It is still brittle, and does not yet lend itself to easy molding. But a time comes when the goldsmith or his apprentice repeats the smelting thoroughly, 
so that the flaws are entirely removed. The gold is now quite pliant, workable, and bright, and it lends itself easy, easily to molding. Whatever ornament the goldsmith now wishes to make of it, be it a, di- a, a diadem, an earring, a necklace, or a golden chain, the gold can now be used for that purpose. It is similar, monks, with the monk devoted to the training in the higher mind. There are in him gross impurities, namely bad conduct of body, speech, and mind. Such con- conduct an earnest, capable monk abandons, dispels, eliminates, and abolishes. When he has abounded in these, there are still impurities of a moderate degree that cling to him, namely sensual thoughts, thoughts of ill will, and violent thoughts. Such thoughts an earnest, capable monk abandons, dispels, eliminates, and abolishes. When he has abandoned these, there are still some subtle impurities that cling to him, namely thoughts about his relatives, his home country, and his reputation. Such thoughts an earnest, capable monk abandons, dispels, eliminates, and abolishes. And when he has abandoned these, there still remain thoughts about higher mental states experienced in meditation, that concentration is not yet peaceful and sublime, it has not yet attained to full tranquility, nor has it achieved mental unification. It is maintained by strenuous suppression of the defilements. But there comes a time when his mind becomes inwardly steadied, composed, unified, and concentrated. That concentration is then calm and refined. It has attained to full tranquility and achieved mental unification. It is not maintained by strenuous suppression of the defilements. Then to whatever mental state realized by direct knowledge he directs his mind, he achieves the capacity of realizing that state by direct knowledge whenever necessary conditions obtain. This is from the Anguttarinikaya. So when we look at the, um, the Samutinikaya, the Connected Discourses on the Unconditioned, there's a whole list of practices that are laid out as part of the gradual training. The first one being mindfulness directed to the body, serenity and insight, concentration, and then it goes through the gradual increases of concentration, concentration with thought and examination, concentration without thought, with examination only, concentration with thought and examination, the emptiness concentration, the signless concentration, and the undirected concentration. Then it goes on to the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right strivings, the four bases of spiritual power, the five spiritual faculties, the five powers, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the eightfold path. And these methods form a foundation of practice in the Theravadan tradition. And so, you know, my senses is what I'd like to do next year when I come back from the retreat, is to pick up this, this whole list which is the 37 Bodhiapakadamas, and work through it as a way of giving a greater sense of what is the gradual path, the gradual training, and some of the resources that we have access to in this tradition that can support our inquiry and our unfolding path. What I wanted to talk about tonight as an extension of this topic is that sometimes what we're dealing with is um, material that appears to be of an emotional nature, but sometimes what it actually is is related to a 
an imprint of something that's embedded in our nervous system which has uh, consequences that need handling. And, you know, uh, trauma certainly is one of those things that falls into that category. So trauma, the way it works is there's some kind of an event or a repeated event or uh, a consistent series of times when a person is at risk. And what's important to recognize is, is that the risk can be a perceived risk, the perceived risk of physical danger or some kind of psychological threat. And what happens to the nervous system and the physical body in those kinds of circumstances is the body goes into a red alert and the adrenal system gets activated and the nervous system is moving in either the fight, flight, or freeze mechanisms. And when there is anything that resembles the initial stimulus or there anything that somehow activates the patterning of fight, flight, or freeze, then you're in a body response mechanism that's very similar to as if there was a threat, even though there may be no threat that's actually apparent. And so in the same way, when we're talking about the gradual path as a systemic Uh, kind of way of looking at the spiritual practice, when we're looking at these kinds of fight-flight-freeze mechanisms, there needs to be a gradual unfolding of how we connect with what's actually happening in our system and begin to start um, releasing the nervous system's accumulation that got embedded in the system as a result of an instance or a repeated series of instances where the system felt under threat. Now, one of the things which is really important when navigating this kind of territory is that in the same way with the metaphor with the gold, you have to start with where you're at. And so if you're dealing with the gold and what you're dealing with is coarse grit, you need to wash it first in order to deal with that stuff and have that stuff first release. And in the simile or in the way of working with this, with the physical body, it's through establishing a sense of ease and well-being in the physical body, a sense of relaxation, a sense of learning how to bring attention to the physical body so that there can be a sense of being able to navigate the sensations without absorbing into the content or the story that may be associated with them. Now, in my own personal journey with this, what has often been the case is is, is that I've needed to develop a certain level of resource, and sometimes I've needed to have resource that's outside of my own practice in order to support my own unfolding. One of the things which is really helpful is to, first of all, have a ground of well-being that one can recognize, a sense of good enough, well enough sense of okayness. If that's not there, it's like that's the ground that needs to be established before one has the capacity to even begin the first layer of attending to what's arising. And so, you know, one of the ways that one can develop this sense of okayness is to reflect on 
one's commitment, to reflect on the precepts that one's keeping, to reflect on one's aspiration, to reflect on the amount of ground that one has in contrast to how things have been in the past, in order to to reflect on the qualities of the Buddha or the Dhamma or the Sangha, or to begin to get a feeling for what happens when one just allows attention to rest. So it's not even so much resting on an object, but just resting. And so what one needs is this basic ground of, of well-being. And then within that, of course, one can reflect on one's generosity. You know, the kinds of good things that one has done, the ways one has used one's life force and energy in a way to support oneself, one others, to support the Dhamma, to support the practice, and to deliberately reflect on one's own goodness as a way of cultivating a sense of good enough well-being that one can then relax into as a support system. So this good enough sense of well-being, it's okay enough, is what I refer to as a safety harness. We absolutely have to have that, and it's essential. If that's not present, we've got to stop and do whatever we need to do in order to establish that. So that safety harness is tethered into our commitment to wake up, and then we can anchor it to certain things that really help us remember, you know, that basically the system fundamentally is okay. You know, that I'm okay. That my life is okay. That my choices are okay. That I'm okay. And, you know, for me, you know, I've got different things that work for me, but one of the things that I find phenomenally helpful is having access to nature. Because when I'm in nature, I have this abundant reflection all around me of solidity, stability, and okayness. And no matter how kind of trembly or agitating the material is that's arising, nothing of it is moving the rocks or the trees or the water or the air. It's just not it's just not going anywhere. So the fact that I can be immersed in nature and feel supported by nature for me is a tremendous anchoring. So my safety harness is both boosted as well as anchored or tethered. And sometimes when I feel shaky or shaken or like like stuff is arising that is feels like it's too much for me to hold myself, I just go press my body into the rocks and I let them hold it for me. And what happens in my own personal experience when I do that is I release the agitation of trying to do something. And I feel supported in something that is vastly larger than me and infinite in its capacity to hold. And when I relax and I feel that support, then I feel a sense of, oh yeah, you know, there's nothing here which is too big that cannot be managed. Now, when I have that safety harness on where I'm tethered to my own goodness and when I have that sense of being able to plug in as much as I need to something which is vast, then that gives me the capacity to allow attention to work with what is arising, to actually bring attention to the physical sensations and to the reactions to them. So the body is a repository of the impressions of our life 
And when stuff is agitating or activating, we will know it in our physical bodies. We'll be tense, or we'll be shaky, or we'll be numb, you know. And for many of us, a a very um, deep-rooted pattern has been to separate our attention and awareness out of our physical body because the physical body felt very uncomfortable to be present with all of this uncomfortable stuff going on. So the first strategy that we developed was to exit stage left. And so in the meditation practice, what we need to do is to return to stage, you know, to actually come back to being with the physical body. And if we're not with the physical body, we don't have the ground to do the work. That has got to be in place. So the second thing, in addition to having a sense of one's own basic goodness and well-being, is having awareness in the body and being able to allow attention and awareness to move with the sensations and to begin to watch how they shift and move and change and to begin to see the reaction to them. I don't want them. I want it to go away. It feels scary or the system contracts and tries to pull away with this kind of false belief that if it pulls itself away from what's uncomfortable, then the uncomfortable thing will go away. So when we're working with this kind of territory, we need to be very simple, very uncomplicated, and very kind of present with the physical body. What is happening? How much physical body is actually something I can feel? How much is absent? How much is numb? How much is vacant? How much is frozen? And then gently bring one's attention to the parts of the body that are vacant, that are absent, that are empty, that are numb. And then watch what happens. See whether that establishes more ground or establishes more anxiety. If it establishes more anxiety, then one needs to move one's attention into that which is actually comforting, feeling safe, but also physically embodied, so not disassociated, not away, but here. When there's that sense of basic goodness, when there's that harness, and one is tethered, one has anchors, one has access, and then one can actually bring attention to the physical body, then one needs to be able to navigate slow, stop, and reverse. You know, so slow is a gentle investigation of something which feels uncomfortable. It's a gentle willingness and ability to move in to sensations or to activation or to a mind-body complex that feels tight and constricted. Stop is to stop the movement into those areas. And reverse is to withdraw one's attention from stuff which is flooding the system where there isn't the capacity to deal with it, to back out and to reconnect with something where the system can actually relax, where there's a sense of well-being, where there's a sense of ease, where there's once again a sense of ground, where there's a sense of capacity. When one reconnects with the sense of ground and capacity, then one can re-engage with what is difficult and uncomfortable. When there is ground, when there is the ability to bring awareness to uncomfortable sensations without freezing, without disassociating, without 
shutting down, without panic, without fear escalating out of control, without any of those things when there is the ability to bring attention to what's happening in the physical body or the mind-body complex as it's arising, without any of those things. Fear, dissociation, shutting down, numbing, panic. Then one can stay present with the uncomfortable sensation and ride it out. If the riding it out shifts into dissociation or fear, if it shifts into shutting down or panic, if it shifts into flooding or overwhelm, then one has to withdraw attention from that and re-establish attention with something that reconnects with one's own sense of basic goodness. There's nothing in any of this which is about force, which is about pressure, which is about having it to have to happen by a certain time or deadline. It's a different way of being with things that's not according to a goal, but in terms of feeling one's way through. And because what one is dealing with is a system which has gotten activated for whatever reason, one needs to be very careful that one doesn't just enter into that territory and reactivate, re-traumatize. That is not useful. It doesn't help anything. And so the way not to reactivate, not to re-traumatize, is not to get immersed into the story get lost in the story, proliferate around the story, but to stay with the physical sensations and to move back and forth between uncomfortable and that sense of ease and well-being that one can have access to or needs to find access to. And so in my own personal practice for a variety of reasons, I have had to learn how to navigate this territory. And there have been long stretches of time where, you know, long periods of silent meditation I have used by doing this, not by concentration, not by um, developing the, the classic stages of insight, but by being able to connect with the agitation in my nervous system and learning how to be present with it in order for it to release. And that has included making sure that I'm eating well, I'm sleeping well, I'm getting plenty of exercise, I'm outside as much as I need to be, and my environment is as safe as I can possibly make it in order to support this kind of work, which is a different work than when one's nervous system is not activated and one's just dealing with arising mental phenomena where one's nervous system is not completely wired up and spinning as a result of it. And so one has got to learn the difference between when meditation and the classical application is relevant and when we need to use meditation in the specialized application when we're dealing with a nervous system that is activated and discharging something that has happened as a result of some kind of trauma. 
And again, with trauma, it's really, really, really important to remember it doesn't matter what the actual thing was. It's the way we experienced it. And so, you know, for a young child, you know, if they are not given emotional warmth, it can feel like absolute death. Even though they've got enough food, they've got enough shelter, they've got enough medicine, if they're not held and loved and mirrored and, 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 and received in a way where their internal reality is somehow validated, for a child that's the experience of total annihilation. And so it's not our business really even to figure out what the story is about how all of this stuff got there. What our business is, is to be like the goldsmith, to work with whatever level we're at, with the skill that's needed, and to attend to that level with the degree of care and sensitivity and thoroughness and skill until we're at a more refined level. It doesn't matter how many times you have to wash the gold to get the grit out. you got to keep washing the gold until the grit is out. And when the grit is out, then you can do a more refined wash. But you don't put the thing in the melting pot until the sand is gone. you got to get rid of the sand before you put it in the melting pot. And then you don't take it out of the vessel until the dross is cleared off the top. So there's a level of honesty, there's a level of humility, there's a level of discernment, there's a level of skill in being able to figure out what's going on. How coarse is the grit? What do I need right now? Am I ready for melting pot or do I need to wash? And so in all of this stuff, it's quite natural that an individual person is not going to be able to be able to locate where they are and what's needed by themselves if it's not something that they have experience with. And so it's, you know, it's quite appropriate to be engaged with conversation with other people who understand. So a goldsmith will talk to other goldsmiths to be able to figure out, you know, is it clean enough? You know, what do I need to do to get the next level of grit out? You know, is it ready to go into a melting pot? How can I tell when the dross is away? Nothing of it is wrong. There's nothing wrong. And no one's to blame. There's no fault. It's just a level of bringing the skill and attention and appropriateness to the practice in all of its many levels. The challenge is, for many of us, is, is that what we're dealing with is what we don't want to be dealing with. We don't want it to be like this. We wish it were otherwise. We read the books about the absolute unshakable deliverance of heart, and that's where we want to go. You know, yesterday, not sooner. <laughs> you know, last night I was with the punks, and this was the continuation of the talk, Love, Sex, and Awakening, you know. And, uh, you know, what I wanted to do was talk about the awakening part of this trio. 
But for many of us, there's injury that we need to attend to. You know, so we need to attend to injury and heal injury, and then we need to work with health. What does health look like? And then when we have attended to injury and work with health, then, then that's a really wonderfully rich opportunity for looking at letting go of desire. But what can happen when we read these texts is we think, I'm on my way to ending desire without dealing with injury or health, and you've got this kind of vacuum with a sutta on top of it. (laughs) And you've got a person that sort of is the same, a vacuum with a sutta on top of it, you know? You know, so everything is at its own level, and it's humbling, and there's times to cry, and it's like, you know, my goodness, this stuff is so difficult sometimes, you know, or the grief of how much there is to endure, or the longing, the longing, the incredible longing, you know which one needs just to welcome and see and not make anything out of. Respond to it with skill according to one's own commitment to precepts, one's own congruence with one's own values, some place where one's at. You know, for me, it was very um, sobering and also very ennobling when I heard Ajahn Pasano say you know it took him 20 years before he could make use of long retreats you know he's a monk of incredible strength and phenomenal integrity and depth 20 years as a monk before he could make use of a long retreat in a way that was fruitful that's a lot of washing. That's a lot of grit. So there's no contest. It's not like we're at a starting gate with the horses and there's a shotgun and it's like, who's going to get to the first? It's like, well, what's needed right now? You know, where are we at? And as each of us is present with where we're at, attending with what is, with skill, compassion, and wisdom, we create a safety for each other to do the same thing. So with this kind of work, we need a harness. We need to be tethered. We need to know slow, stop, reverse. We absolutely need to have a ground of well-being. If we don't have that, we've got nothing to work from. As we are able to do this, as we feel this ground of well-being, it is from that place of being able to open up to stuff that's there where we can begin to get a sense of that which knows is different from what is known. We can bring attention to this stuff and not absorb into it, identify with it, cling to it. It can be there. Awareness is not colored by what it is aware of. Mind and mind object are not the same. And in that, there is tremendous capacity to be with very uncomfortable stuff. 
but there's no confusion and there's no sense of dissolving it's just very uncomfortable stuff that one's aware of and sometimes because of the way that stuff gets embedded it takes a while for it to release but the way it releases is by bringing attention to the physical sensations and the reactions to the physical sensations and not adding anything else to it not wanting, not not wanting, not identifying just being present in a very simple, uncomplicated way and allowing it to change. So the gradual path is an important path. It's important to know that that is the path. Just to take a lot of care to make sure that we're doing what we need with where we're at. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.